Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite, a Project Moon Hut podcast series where we're looking at establishing uh, a box with a roof and a door, a moon hut on the moon, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, then taking that paradigm shifting and the innovations that are developed and turning them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Today, we have a, a very interesting topic, uh, the underlying impact of space exploration on Earth. And we're talking with Chris Carberry. How are you, Chris? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, David. Well, I'm very much excited to hear what you've got to talk about. So the, uh, Chris is the CEO and co-founder of Explore Mars. He also just wrote a book recently called Alcohol uh, and Space. And the reason that Chris was asked on, like many other guests, is there's a, uh, an originating concept or thought, and Chris had written to me saying, might I be looking for somebody? And our dialogue transitioned into something very interesting is not only the alcohol and space, because that's a small piece, but what are the underlying impacts of all space exploration and the things, the activities we've been engaged in for however long he'd like to discuss. And so Chris and I came to the conclusion that this would be a fantastic topic and I think he'd be the person who can deliver what we're looking for. So Chris, I'm assuming you have an outline or some bullet points, am I correct? I do, I have six of them. Okay, can you hand them over please? All right, number one, this is a two-part one with a question and an answer. Space settlements, question mark. Markets on Earth are more important than markets in space. Number two, space settlement will depend on non-space companies. Oh, okay. Uh, non-space companies. Okay, third. Third, third is, is, is connected one critical critical innovation will come from unexpected places you've got some long ones here go ahead <laughs> <laughs> sorry this no no worries no worries this one here is the longest one. Oh, thanks we will only have spaced outposts comma not space civilization comma until certain taboos are broken are broken. I think you've won the award for the largest, longest um, series of them. And the fifth one? <laughs> Future missions to the moon and Mars are, are already benefiting humanity. And next, last one. And the last, the last one is a short one. Global coordination is essential. I, I've got to be honest with you. I think these are the longest I've ever had as a total. So, Let's start with the first one. Let's get right into this. Space settlements, markets on Earth are more important than markets in space. I, I'm ready, willing to listen and learn. Well, we always get so obsessed. We're talking about future markets in space, you know, building up the, you know, an economy in space. We're all looking forward to that. And that eventually will come. But I think people forget, or at least the public, we don't do a very good argument or a very good, uh, we don't express ourselves very well that really the core here are the markets here on Earth. 
How can markets here on Earth benefit from space exploration? How can we create this synergy to show that these markets, these products, we, we are going to be able to benefit humanity with the products, the benefits that are being generated in space, but here on Earth. It's like the old saying that we're not actually, people talk about us spending a lot of money in space. We don't spend any money in space. We spend it here on Earth. Same thing as we're talking about commercial space. Eventually we will, people will make exchanges of money in space and it'll stay there, but that's still a little ways off. And so we have to start looking at this, you know, as we're talking about the benefits for Earth, how space exploration benefits basically the entire planet, we really have to emphasize that finding ways to utilize markets on Earth to help generate generate more sustainability, create that ecosystem you were talking about, because the more the more industries, the more groups that can understand that they can play a role in this and they can find a market utilizing space and to advance up future settlements, I think we're going to have a much better chance of achieving those settlements in space. So, so are, are, are you suggesting, and this is just the suggestion, that our perspective should be that the reality of space will not be all of these great markets popping up immediately could take a very 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 long time and that if in fact we look at this as a not the word keep bipolar but it's not bipolar it's by object or by define definition that just like project moon hut that if in fact we go to space and we tie it to earth we'll have a better chance or a reality check that will happen over time. So did I say Absolutely. that right? Yeah, 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 you did. Because I think when we focus too much on well, at least defining it as space mar markets, it is actually could be unintentionally uh, hurting us. If we just wait until we're really making and spending money in space, we're never going to get there. We need to build this and build that momentum here on Earth. And I think most people in the space industry understand that. Uh, actually, I, actually, I would disagree that most people in the space industry agree with that because I just received an, an announcement. Some company just said, we were no longer dark. And so they've, they've come out into the light and they have this entire civilization underground on the moon with pillars and diagrams. And I said to myself, okay, they've got server farms. They've got complete biological or health or um, research facilities. They had, I mean, it was just so extensive. I said, what, what are they thinking? This is, this, this is 30, 40, 50 years in the future, if that. So I'm not, I, I wouldn't completely agree. I think that some people see what you just said and other people, oh, they're oh, selling yeah, the promised... Go ahead. Oh, no, don't trust me. I, I agree with you there. I think the people who are doing the real, you know, the real, making the real momentum, really moving us forward, understand where the markets are. But I think we all hear, and sometimes with some very prominent people within the space community talking about exactly what you're saying, these far-flung, massive facilities, talking about, you know, where you assume there is an already a market there on on the planet, on the moon, on Mars, on you know, on some space station, and they're jumping over a, 
quite a few steps. You know, we it's need, it's amazing how it's amazing yeah, how far they jump. It's yeah, it's, it, it's like it's like doing the pole vault jump. These people, it's almost as if uh, there's one person I know who's going to build the first ever city in space. I okay, wait, wait, wait. We still haven't fit. We can't even get to the moon yet on a regular basis, and we're we're still struggling with the International Space Station. And yeah. you've already, you've shown me diagrams where there are five thousand or twenty thousand people living in this community. And what have you done so far? You drew pictures. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's it. We've seen. Go ahead. No, we've seen, uh, it's, it's, that's pretty common. We see these wonderful pictures, wonderful videos from various groups. My, one of my favorites within the Mars society, that's Mars um, community, was Mars One. Yeah, well, lots of wonderful imagery, some cool videos, you know, saying we want to send, you know, thousands of people to live on, you know, one-way trip to Mars. How are they going to do this? We don't even know if you can live on Mars. We think you can. But you're missing an awful lot of steps here. And so I think we have a lot of that, a lot of these groups out there that just don't really understand how things work. It's great to have these ambitious goals. I mean, we've had ambitious goals for science fiction and futurists, and those are essential. But we have to be able to <clears throat> clarify within our community how we're articulating this to the general public and people who mo most likely will invest that there's a difference. These are the things that are absolutely necessary now if we will, first off, your company will actually benefit from this. Humanity will, and there will be a profit from it. You know, let's say maybe if we're successful, maybe another 50 years, 60 years, 100 years, we might be able to achieve that goal. Well, then where there might be a self-sustaining economy on the moon or on Mars or somewhere else. But we have to be careful there. <laughs> So what do you see? I mean, the first thing is space settlements, question mark, markets on Earth. So can you define what you see as space settlements and what you are seeing as markets? You mean the ones that are based on yeah, Earth what markets, you, correct? Yeah, you could give both. I mean, what do you see happening if you were to paint a small picture? What's Earth and space-based? Or as a guy, Andreas and I were talking yesterday, he says, We've always thought about ourselves as living in Earth, and I shared with you the video, we have this concept called Mirth. He said what Project Moon has done is more or less given us a different diameter in which we live and we have opportunities. So how would you define future space settlements and how would you define the markets on Earth that will come out of this? And this is largely related to some of the next points coming up. Okay. But, Go ahead, you, know, you, can, you can do it any way you'd like. Well, let me kind of quickly go over this, and then we can get to the other points, which will cover a lot of the same territory as well. Okay. But I think, you know, I think it's going to start off similar, in a similar manner to, for instance, but not for the same purpose uh, as what we, this level of um, settlement we have in Antarctica. Now, that's entirely focused on science, so it's not a perfect analogy but it's actually an interesting size settlement where you actually have groups of people, you know, fairly large number, but not, you know, not a huge number, it's not a town. You have bars, you have other thing else. So I think that's, that's the level of initial ones once you get past those initial sortie type missions. And how, 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 big are, how big are they in Antarctica? 
Uh, you know, it, it, it varies. They don't remember the total number because they have multiple bases and they have, I don't remember what the numbers are, but I think they have, you know, uh, quite a few people because they have three bars down there. So <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but it, it's relatively small. It's like a very small town, you know, when you look at it. But I, I'd have to look up what the actual numbers are. But of course, it changes throughout the year. Well, uh, I, just, I just looked it up just to help because I didn't know. There are around 66 scientific bases on Antarctica, of which about 37 are occupied year round. The remainder are open during the summer and closed down for the winter. There are about 4,000 people throughout the summer months and about 1,000 over winter each year. That's interesting because I wouldn't have guessed it was as high as 4,000. I was thinking, I was thinking over 1,000, but so that's interesting, but still within that level that I was yeah. talking about, yeah. small town, yeah. you know, and so in some, but it's not really self-sustainable. There are self-sustainable elements into the there, but it's still not, they're still a fairly uh, reliant, I mean, on Earth, obviously, but from supplies from elsewhere on Earth. And initial, initial settlements, outposts on the moon or Mars, while we're going to always be working towards that self-sustainability through agriculture, gener using ISRU, utilizing... Um, what's you know, I, what's ISRU? Oh, sorry, in situ resource utilization, essentially living off the land. Okay. You know, whether it be using the soil, utilizing in on Mars the CO2 atmosphere, or the water, the water on the moon, or other resources on the moon. You know, that's the, the real, the holy grail in space exploration, you know, to enable uh, permanent presence is ISRU. If you can't live off the land, you can't. You can't have space settlements, you can't have or sustainable ones, you can't have civilization. Just like if when the first European settlers came to the New World, they had to wait for shipments of all their food from Europe, that would not have been sustainable. Yeah. Okay. I, I, actually, I love the analogy of Antarctica. It, no, thank you. It's always, it's, you know, I always look at this, and but you, we sometimes look at the Antarctic um, model in a negative light as well. Because people, you know, look at it, we can't only be doing this. No, it shouldn't be, because there's, there's an argument within the space community, you know, folks who want to have long-term settlement and colonies versus the people with exclusively science focus, where they say, this is all we should have. Antarctica should be the model and the only model we should follow. We should not assume that we're going to create civilization anywhere else, you know, for various reasons, whether it be planetary protection, not screwing up another planet, et cetera. There are a lot of different reasons, but and the Antarctic uh, model can't be discount because it is a great model for that early phase. And as we're learning to live off the land, we're learning how to live on another planet because we always assume, oh yeah, of course, we're gonna be able to go to the moon or Mars and it'll be just great, but we don't know that. We well, need, the, we the, need the, to learn. The challenge to me is often timelines. Even to get 4, 000, 67 bases or to get whatever numbers in Antarctica, it didn't happen overnight. So when someone suggests that we will have this within 10 years, well, how many, Air, how many flights would have to occur 
from the earth to just the moon to get 5,000 or 4,000 people on the moon. They're not going to be born there. And if no. you, even if you had 100 at a time, which is an enormous number because you'd have to have resources at the destination, how do you end up with 40 of these flights happening? And all along while you're building, you have to build building materials, you'll have to have all uh, the amount of resources or structures or tools in place would be astronomical. So do you see much happening within space? Within space in what regard? Meaning not on the moon, but uh, more international space stations of larger scale happening in the past, in the next decade or whatever timeline you're using. I do, but I actually don't see the space station option, at least initially, being the most practical one. Now, the most famous company focused on that, Bigelow, is largely shut down. Oh, and really? Yeah, Big, think, Bigelow shut down? I believe so. I think the COVID virus, COVID virus kind of put them, you know, completely stopped them. But they had been, you know, they had started off with some wonderful success with those two, first those two test inflatable uh, modules and of course they attached the beam to um, the space station yeah but you know they were the primary ones being looked at and, and there are others out there but it's unclear whether any of the others have the wherewithal have the funding to be able to do this right now I mean it looks like the space station current space station the International Space Station is it now but the big question there is is there a viable commercial model? We keep talking about handing off to the commercial sector, but thus far I haven't seen any viable plans where NASA still isn't largely and its partners aren't largely responsible for making sure it doesn't um, come falling back down to earth. <laughs> so the, the Project Moon Hut four phases, and I'm not trying to sell Project Moon, I'm just using it as a reference point because you've, there's a, for those who are listening, I'll break here. For those who are listening, there is a uh, YouTube channel, Project Moonha, and there's a video, 20 minutes and 40 minutes. And I, in there, there are the four phases of Project Moonha development. So let's come back. The, the belief and the timeline of this taking decades to get us to a point of having any type of sustainable life on the moon, not self-sustaining, but sustainable, meaning we could supply it. And your estimation is with what you're saying, it's a little further out based upon a company like Bigelow and Bigelow makes modular homes uh, out of a, uh, I don't know how to say it. Uh, how would you say it? Like a balloon that would go inflatable home that would be able to go on the moon or as someone recommended taking a piece of the International Space Station and pushing it to the moon but we don't have anything really in the loop as of this moment that creates a rapid deployment. Yeah, I think it's much more likely. It's interestingly, it's interesting the fact that it's more likely and more practical now that we're going to have actual uh, outpost on the moon and perhaps possibly Mars. And I think that could happen before we actually have uh, sustainable commercial space stations at the rate we're going. The emphasis, the emphasis right now is getting to the surface of the moon, getting on to Mars, getting to the surface of Mars. Now, being a guy who runs a Mars group, 
I like this direction, but <laughs> that still remains to be seen if it will happen, but a large amount of the momentum is heading in that direction. And I just don't, I have not seen any viable, you know, currently viable space station, private space station uh, models right now that have the right funding and momentum. And as I said, I haven't also seen any particularly compelling uh, arguments or, or, or ways to move forward uh, with a privatized International Space Station. You know, it'll be interesting to see if they can figure it out. Still have a few years, but... <laughs> uh, th this, this company that just said something to me said 2026, and I'm thinking, you're building an aircraft carrier on the moon, and you think you're going to be able to do it within six years. And so, it's, 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 yeah, it's a, we, we need to get, we need to get four to eight people to go around the moon and return, uh, and live on there, live on the moon for 27 days, just to experience that whole challenge more than we are going to get to, uh, putting a, an aircraft carrier on the moon tomorrow. Well, yeah, and this, this is the critical thing. And this is where even with people like, and I'm a great fan of Elon Musk and, 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 um, um, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos. Sometimes everybody gets ahead of themselves. I think they're all doing great work and they're going to be a critical player. But, you know, when they say, oh, I'm going to get there in four years or send 100 people at a time, you know, in some ways, I think the NASA, no, I don't agree with everything that NASA does either. But, you know, we do need to have some of those initial missions to make sure we can live there, you know, with the right people to figure these things out and then grow it from there. But, kind of, and I'll use this as a segue to move on to the next um, point, which relates, and maybe I'll say both of them at once, you know, as I said, number items number two and three, where space settlement will depend on non-space companies and critical innovation will come from unexpected places. This is where I think, and this relate, goes right back to that initial uh, hypothesis about, or statement about how um, markets on earth are more in, important, at least in the short term. Mm -hmm. And it's we always focus on the big rocket companies. SpaceX will get us to Mars. Blue Origin will get us to the moon. Or NASA, international partners will do this. And we focus on the big rockets. And that's kind of it. <laughs> it's like it, the big rockets are important. But there's a lot more to creating a sustainable, you know, presence on the moon and Mars, creating outpost civilization in all these places. And these are companies we don't necessarily, or capabilities, we don't usually think about with regards to space exploration. Companies working on, for instance, the easiest one, which people have thought about more within space, companies working on artificial intelligence. And this is even more important when we're going on to Mars. Because we will, you know, until, well, until now, we still, you know, astronauts on the International Space Station always are a quick phone call away, or whatever they call it, <laughs> quick communication with Earth. And they even in these days, they can send stuff up pretty quickly. There's always replacement parts. And then, of course, they can escape pretty quickly if there's something going wrong on the International Space Station. When you're on Mars or going to Mars, I, I need to jump in for one minute because you asked, you just said something, and I never thought about that answer. Is there a rapid deployment um, exit for the people on the International Space Station? 
Yeah, they have Soyuz um, there. Do you know, docked so and ready to go, just in case. Okay, I, I never thought about it, never asked. Yeah, they're able to get in them. If something goes wrong, they're able to um, get in and then release. I don't know all the mechanics, if there's every, if they can just instantaneously, but, uh, or if they have to wait for a certain window, but since they're emergency escape ones, uh, <laughs> presumably they can uh, let loose pretty quickly. Quickly. Okay, I just never had, never thought about it, but yes, I think it would be nice to have. Yeah, but you can't do that on going to Mars. No, no even on going to the moon, it's going to be much more difficult. Yeah, yeah, like Apollo thirteen, there was an option, but. <laughs> only by the skin of their teeth by being really innovative and doing a free return were they able to get back you know without you know loss of life or complete complete mission failure but okay. you know when you get beyond further beyond and you also have communications delays this is where some of these critical technologies that aren't necessarily going to come from the space companies or from NASA are critical AI, kind of like that HAL technology in 2001, but ho hopefully not homicidal, you know, <laughs> making sure that you have systems that are smart enough to anticipate or have, you know, can, you know, you have medical libraries, doctors with inputted, inputted input, <laughs> um, you know, medical uh, information, uh, diagnoses, if you put like ask it, you know, I have these systems, uh, symptoms, you know, and have systems, AI systems that have been programmed by medical professionals to anticipate these things. So, or, you know, these things are all important. Uh, and, you know, you can't control it from Earth as well, like when you have systems coming in, like landing on Mars, like we do now, you know, when we have uh, robotic probes landing, they're all on their own. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Earth will send commands, but those commands are not going to be any help when, like, for instance, the upcoming Perseverance uh, rover is landing. You know, once it's beginning its entry to and landing, it's on its own. <laughs> So when you say space settlement will be uh, non-space companies, can you give me a few examples of what your what do you put? Do you have All a right. list of them, or give, uh, some I that I can? Well, one, yeah, one of them is actually, um, you know, this one relates. This one is in the unexpected places. One of my favorite ones right now is very unexpected. Did you know? Did you know that Budweiser is playing an interesting, uh, critical role right now? I did not know that. <laughs> well, it's not necessarily a potentially critical role. See, you know, Budweiser announced, and not to plug my book here, but it's this is kind of how I learned about this. You know, Budweiser announced several years ago they wanted to be the first beer manufacturer on Mars, and of course, we thought it was just a PR stunt. But since then, they have sent four barley experiments to the International Space Station. And you think about, oh, that's great. You know, maybe we can make beer in space. Or in my case, I'd like to make whiskey. But when you look beyond that, this is what they are actually doing. Whether you want a beer in space or not, this actually this is much more important because this is a company with no space connection to space investing in agriculture. And agriculture, the agriculture companies that have an interest in agriculture are one of these non-space type companies. I mean, whether it be Budweiser or others that are more specifically ag, but they are investing in a 
one of the most essential capabilities if we want to have civilization beyond our planet. We're not going to do that without investment in agriculture. Uh, uh, see, I thought you were going to say we, do, we weren't going to do it without investment in beer. So uh, I'm glad you... Well, <laughs> that, that's my next point about breaking um, taboos. But, <laughs> but no, the agriculture is essential. We cannot maintain human presence if we can't grow food. If we're living on the moon or Mars or anywhere else, if we're always dependent on a shipment from Earth, that is not a sustainable, that is, that's not a sustainable presence. That's not, you know, a living, breathing, breathing uh, ecosystem. That is something that is dependent, you know, on Earth. And so if something happened on Earth to prevent even not a global disaster or pandemic like we're going through right now, but if for some reason, you know, launch capacity broke down for a while, does that mean you're just not going to eat? <laughs> right. So, you know, it's that agriculture is one of those critical areas that, um, you know, probably will be greatly impacted by non-space companies. Another one is, and this is kind of an interesting one, it also relates to food. Um, and some of, them, some, some of them are thinking about this, some of them haven't really thought through the space implications, but one of my favorite, or one of my favorite things I like hearing, you know, when people are hypothesizing what people are gonna eat, when they're in space and one of these things that i don't agree with a lot of people will say of course they're going to be vegan and you know you can understand why we're not going to be bringing cows up to the moon or Mars. i, I have been i have been saying to people for the six years i've been involved in this you have not seen any cows chickens pigs or fish on star trek enterprise because they're not carrying them they have 3d printing technology that's the, the space replicator. So it's interesting. You're the first person I've heard say, we're not going to have cows, chickens, pigs on Mars or Moon. Not we are, but not, not in the way you might think. And you were on close to the mark with the 3D printing, and that's one of them. But we can actually have chicken, beef, fish, and you don't even have to 3D print it. You similar technology. Um, growing, growing capability right now, and with a lot of companies in California and elsewhere, is cellular yeah. grown meat. Yes. And one like thin, Thinless Foods, which does, as you can imagine, fish. Um, there are companies, I remember watching a company that did chicken, and they, the company uh, employees are sitting down at a picnic table eating uh, chicken sandwiches, and the chicken they were eating actually walked by. <laughs> and so... Oh. <laughs> so, so when, when you think about this consumption-based or uh, using molecular biology to be able to grow this product in vats or in, in factories, uh, that's, the, that's the step that you're watching on Earth. I am, because this is, you know, it's not likely. I never believed that people were going to all of a sudden turn into vegans. Everybody, some people will. That's their choice. But I didn't think this was realistic. But I think there are ways around it. And so I think if you can just bring a few cells from yeah. chickens, from various, you know, fish, and from beef and others, you know, yeah, that I, doesn't I, cost I, way 
anything. And if you can just do use science, produce it, yep. and you can do it in a yep. way that actually tastes very realistic now. And you can adjust it for health as well. So you can actually adjust the taste. You can also do it so it's uh, generally even more healthy than the original, you know, than the real meat. I don't know if it really tastes as good, but certainly will be better than just eating lettuce. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm my take is I believe it will happen. I'm going to ask you a question, then I want you to continue with the list. I've asked this question: If in fact the meat is produced in a vat, no animals were killed in the process of developing that product. I think it, well, it's not a question, but it's a statement. I think it's going to be very challenging for individuals who have a moral or an ethical or however you want to position this concept of eating a live animal if it's no longer living, if it has just come out of a vat. And I wonder how in the future when these technologies merge or accelerate to the point of possibilities, there becomes a question, do I not eat that now because no animals were harmed in the making of this food? Well, technically speaking, you know, I suppose the, when you're talking about vegans, mm -hmm. you know, that they have much more rigorous standards, you know, nothing that's an animal byproduct. Yeah, so I understand. You are stealing some cells from an animal. They didn't allow you, they didn't tell you that they wanted you to have those cells. And yeah. so technically speaking, Probably would still be a uh, no-no to vegans, but from you know a vegetarian perspective, you know why not? I think it, it you know it depends on where you're coming at this. If it's a dietary thing that you just don't want to have meat, that's fine. But it, it does bring up some interesting discussions on yeah. this whole uh, this whole argument. If you are actually not killing any any animals and you can still eat meat, <laughs> how, it's, where, it just. Just, just the dialogue, I think it's an interesting question about decision-making. So what else do you have on this list? We have chicken beef, we have Budweiser. What else do you have? Well, there are also companies, and this is, I'm not going to name specific companies for every one of these, but general areas that, you know, are critical. Uh, well, you already mentioned 3D printing, um, and that's, that's another one that's just, you know, they're also working on, they, they've been doing 3D printed food for some time, but all these different um, 3D print, printing company like Made in Space or others, so I did mention a company, but they are- yeah, That's okay, space don't space. worry about it. That's, uh, it's good um, to hear the names. Yeah. And I, and I think so, they're putting one on the International Space Station now, aren't they? Is that one of the- I believe, I believe they already have one up there, but I believe there's another one going up. Yeah, I think there's I, another one going. Yeah, I, haven't, I, I confess I haven't paid attention too closely to exactly where, you know, what their current status is, but, but there are a lot of them out there, and this is one, again, these technologies that as we advance them for space exploration, we are benefiting Earth at the same time as well. So I, we I'll throw one out because you haven't, I would like to hear more on the list because I know that IKEA has been investing in space which was an interesting thought, IKEA. They're looking at future living environments or places to, or I actually don't even know their, their design thought behind this, but they are investing in space, which is a surprise to me. Oh yeah, they are. I mean, because that whole living space is so important. Um, and there's actually a connection I'll get to shortly because it reminded me of, you know, the current, 
current circumstance, the whole world's in right now, and the connection there is to Mars exploration. But designing that living space um, within a confined space to accommodate a group of people, small group of people, basically living in isolation for three years, uh, at least if we're going to Mars, is a challenging one. So IKEA, basically that's their whole thing, trying to figure this out, figure out living spaces. So they have invested, and interestingly, I, I, I was talking to, or late, late last year, talking to a number of ar ar um, architectural firms that have been shifting towards space design. You know, mainstream architectural firms, and these were in New York. You don't usually expect to talk to like the space interested architects in, in Manhattan, but I, I was amazed how much interest in the architectural world there is in space exploration because of first off solving these problems for living in a confined space and maximizing the space you're living in. And I remind you also, people think about it in the terms that we are on within 1G. You have to think when you're talking about using space in space, <laughs> it's you, you have to assume that you're using all of the space. You're not locked to the floor. So you have to think of the walls and the ceiling that it's not just the floor space that you're using because every surface is the floor space there. Right. Or, or every, every surface is the ceiling. Every surface, yeah, every, yeah, depending on how you use it. Yeah. But even still, these companies are looking at it also for how can we utilize it here on Earth? Because, you know, particularly in cities like New York, where like a square, a square inch of apartment space is like a house in some other parts of the country, you know, people trying to figure out the right way of designing a space that's even very small, but still can be practical and livable. Have, and you, seen, have, have you seen an actual, have you seen, for example, of an Ikea or an architect that has taken a concept that they've used in the design of space and applied it in a reasonably known environment on Earth? I believe, I haven't seen this one, I've seen images, but um, I believe IKEA, there was some IKEA partnership with the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah, which the Mars Society runs. And that's one of the, you know, that's been around for a while and it's modeled on, basically it's designed to be at the same size as the initial, one of the initial um, habitats on Mars. So they've been running that for a while, but they, you know, a lot of thought was given to that whole design and making sure people had you could not, not only work, but live together, work together, but also had privacy. And I haven't really looked at what they've done, but I do recall that IKEA actually may have worked with them a little bit to work in that space to figure out, you know, what might work best to accommodate the crew in both the um, their work environment, but making sure they didn't drive each other insane, which well, my is going to be a big issue. My, my mind races towards first one, when you're going to the uh, moon or Mars, or let's go moon, I, do you walk through the same store and get to a certain like area in the store? Like it's part of your path or do you, uh, will they deliver? Uh, so I've got these humorous type things in my head. Is it gonna be made of particle board? Uh, not everything's made of particle board, but are they going to keep it cheap? So there, are, it's an interesting, I, I wonder 
when we'll see something that has a, or be notified that this design concept came from a space-based thinking uh, paradigm shift. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's an interesting one. With with IKEA or those companies like that, you know, I, you know, it'd be interesting to see how quickly. You know, hopefully it's not made of particle board, and we won't be using particle board in space anytime soon. <laughs> a, gra a graphene or whatever. So, uh, what other ideas do you have? What other places have you seen? Well, you know, of course, I'm going to. I'm just going to go through the categories sure. right here. Areas that you know are critical, like communications. Right now, deep space our deep space communications network is completely inadequate for sending humans to Mars. Obviously, the Moon it's easier, it's much closer, but with Mars, um, just a limited bandwidth. You can't. We're not going to be able to change the speed of light, so we're always going to have. Uh, the latency, you know, so a gap, a time period between communication and an answer, but we can fix the bandwidth. So there are companies in Silicon Valley and others looking at this, creating, you know, interplanetary internet. One of the people who's given this most thought is Vint Cerf. Anyway, he's pretty much the father of the internet. He's now a vice president at Google. Yeah, I know Vince. Yeah, Vint has been working on yeah, concepts for um, dramatically increasing the bandwidth for internet and not international interplanetary communication for some time. And he's consulted with NASA and others. So I think this is an area, another area where companies, technology companies, you know, if they're given a problem, might be able to have that solution if you're not just depending on, say, you know, you know, one organization, be it NASA or one company like SpaceX, it's when you challenge these innovators, you know, when you have a lot of different people looking at it, a lot of different directions, this is where you're going to get, you know, the really critical uh, forward motion in these capabilities. But other areas like mining and power companies, you know, power companies on Earth are looking at this. Oil companies are have been looking at space because they're interested in you know, ISRU, utilizing resources. I can't remember some of the examples, so I, I'm only gonna keep that as a top level example here. But uh, telemedicine's another critical one. Um, and this is once again, it leads into some of the things we're going through right now. Um, right, tell them, you know, when we're going to the moon or Mars or anywhere else, until we have actually created civilization and we have medical facilities equal to here on earth on these places we're going to need to be in communication in most in at least in more serious circumstances with earth and so uh, it's forced us to look at different ways of telemedicine being able to diagnose remotely being able to um, do certain procedures while there's a limit to what you can do from earth to mars because of the latency but you can still you know, they are still building systems to figure out how to work with this. And this relates to the AI as well. This also relates to our environment right now because telemedicine's become even more important as we're trying, <laughs> trying to keep people safe, trying to social isolate, but also trying to be able to find an innovative new ways to make sure that they can see a doctor or a psychologist. Psychologist's a little easier because you can communicate via the phone and do it in a way that's safe without taking unnecessary risks. 
And so this, these are all critical ones, which also will have definite benefits back here on Earth. This is where this is one of the things that got me into it, inspired by Mars exploration. I mean, I certainly excited about the prospect of human settlements on another planet, but it was the the concept of or the what shall I say? It was that prospect of that massive innovation that could come from it. You know, what do you need to be able to survive, create that ecosystem on Mars, and what are the products that are needed? And things that we, problems we'll look at in a way that we would never look at them in this way on Earth, but we can also bring back to Earth, help humanity, but also be a major uh, positive, um, uh, element for the economy because I really see this if we do it right that all these things can have a dramatic impact on our economy in the long term. Well, that's a uh, this is you're you're basically outlining Project Moonhot one component of it. Uh, very quickly, can you name some names? Mining power, telemedicine, AI, psycho psychological. Any companies that are doing something really interesting in your mind? Well, with AI, there are a number, obviously, companies like um, uh, IBM Watson. Um, they're doing, they have, they very much have space on their minds, you know, and they, they, they want to use Watson and other AI technology, you know, for going for space exploration. And we've been talking to IBM quite a bit. I know Google's been working on this. HP. So there are a lot of companies looking at AI. Um, Let's see what other um, telemedicine. Let me see if there's a company that I can think of. I should have written down some more of the names here. Um, take it, take your time, man. Uh, Just try, trying to get my mind around some of the people, the the companies well, well, or individuals. Well, with my mobile, for instance, ISRU materials and things like that. Caterpillar. Yeah. Caterpillar has been, you know, been getting more involved in coming to space conferences. A number of, I know a lot of people in the space community have communicated with them, particularly on, you know, lunar resources and things like that. So there has been interest from companies like Caterpillar and yeah. becoming a player in this. You know, if we're going to have, if we're going to excavate on the moon, are we going to rely on NASA to build all the excavating equipment? No, let's get companies that know how to do this on earth, mm -hmm. you know, or if you're drilling, you know, I, I as I said, I believe the, you know, a number of the oil companies, and I, I don't want to, I'm trying to remember which ones, because uh, they've all gotten the STEM education, so it's getting all jumbled in my mind, have gotten interest there as well. So it's, let's see if I can think of some of the others. Um, um, yeah, I think I've I think I've run out of the examples off the top of my head. I should have no, written more of them. No worry. So. The, the the first time I sat down with Bruce Pittman and I went over how Project Moonhot ended up being created, the whole story, I said Caterpillar. I said cat cat would like Caterpillar would like little cats on the moon. And he said to me, Oh yeah, they're really interested in this because I said it's remote mining. It's capabilities that could be used on Earth and in space. Doesn't matter if you're a mile underground, or you are uh, at a distant planet, it's still mining being done. So that's, I'm glad you mentioned Caterpillar. I wonder what some of the others are. 
Yeah, there, there are a lot. As I said, I should have dug even more and more into the details, but um, and some just aren't coming to mind. But there are a lot that are getting more and more interested. And I think the critical thing is, once it's looking even more realistic, you know, you'll see. There's, a, there's already a lot of companies looking at this, but they're at the beginning stages. Once they, we can see that this is beyond just theory, and we're getting closer. That's why companies are getting more interested. But once it really looks real, and we are actually returning to the moon, and we're going to Mars, and we actually start mining, or doing, you know, searching for minerals, or trying to extract water, that's when, you know, there's gonna be more and more interest. So this will start, this will start a cascading effect. You know, once it becomes real, and they can see the prospect not only to be to participate in a big project that'll actually get their name out there, but the potential of a long-term uh, profit. And most of these will be, it's not gonna be a short-term one unless they get a big government contract and that's the source of their profit. But it still will be a little while before they actually make a direct profit from the actual mining on the moon oh, or yeah. Mars. It's or a it's a combination of things. It's a, it's a promotional component. There's a branding component. There's a uh, first ever to have done something component. And that's where the Roger Bannister space, which uh, you and I have spoken about the, the, once it's achieved, venture will open up, banking will open up if you want to put the category. And we'll start to see more and more insurance companies who will say we're willing to take the risk on the project. So there will be a whole transformation of the industry once we have the Roger Bannister space, a box with a roof and a door on the moon. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that so uh, we've done. Uh, I think you said three and four, two and three were together. So four, four was uh, space outposts, not space civilizations. Certain uh, until certain taboos are broken. What did you mean by that? Right now, and um, well, right now. Everything right now in space, of course, it's very controlled. We only have a few people up there. They're on duty 24 hours a day. And so there's no, even when they have off time, they don't really have off time. And they're very restricted in their active activities. And there are certain taboos that people don't like talking about officially. One of which I wrote a book about, alcohol in space. Another one is sex in space. The other, the next one is just generally incorporating everything, freedom in space. Yeah, because right now, there's, you can understand why we can't. It's very difficult to talk or at least acknowledge drinking in space because, you know, you don't want the perception that you have inebriated astronauts. Although I found no evidence of any astronauts or cosmonauts becoming inebriated in space. But, you know, the other one is even more challenging, of course, being sex in space. And... It's a challenging one because we know it's eventually going to happen if it hasn't already. But what are the implications if you can conceive in if you conceive in space, and how will the um, you know how will the um, child develop? Will they be able to live on Earth if they're developed if they were conceived in microgravity or in one third gravity or in one sixth gravity? And so, but. As long as these things are restricted, you're not really living in a civilization. Civilizations have that freedom. You're not on duty 24 hours a day. You're, you have, you know, you live like you are here, mostly minus being isolated by a pandemic. But 
you know, so until you actually have, you know, or just assume there's going to be consumption of alcohol, hopefully, hopefully irresponsible drinking, but that's not always the case in a free society. And once you assume people are going to have sex and, and um, you know, have children, you know, so really, really have a civilization because you have to get past that period of caution, that period of um, basically experimentation. Right. I was going to, I was going to say that I don't know if it's a taboo. I would, maybe this is a different way to look at it. It is a point in which a group of individuals get past the point of doing exploration. They get past the point of experimentation. They get past the point of this is how we're trying to survive to a point in which they could start. Right. So I wouldn't say it's a taboo because the last conversation I had with Peter Garrickson, the, the, the previous interview, we talked about the potential of what freedom and space means. You took it differently. His was more about the sickle on the moon versus the American flag. Uh, so he took it from a, a governance side, but I think you're just taking it from the ability to live your life in a, in a manner that humans live. And yesterday with Andreas from Berlin, we talked about sex. And we did talk about, first of all, no fluids in, in the spacecraft is not very good. We did talk about the fact that you have to have harnesses to hold people down. And then he brought up some other pieces, some other evidence that the body, the blood doesn't go to the extremities the same way. It tends to go more to the head. And that's why people look younger in space. It's like they've gotten injections, but that men can't function. So they're developing these devices that a man would put in their other end and it would give electrical shock treatment so that a man could have a baby. So he could be with a woman because that those pieces don't work. And we had a whole conversation about that. So I, yes, they are happening. And maybe this, uh, if you know of anybody who'd be great to have a, an interview on this, I would be interested to bring them on board. Any of them, freedom in space or sex in space or alcohol in space. Let me think about that, but there are a number yes. of people. That would be an interesting dialogue because I had never heard of this, these new devices that are being developed, which are sound, well, if you're gonna to go to Mars and you can't have children, you could bring an egg, but that changes the entire dynamics of a civilization. Yeah, it does. And so, yeah, I hadn't heard about those devices. That's something, that's something I'm interested in looking up now. It's, <laughs> so. it, it was just that we, we hit on the topic of he and I speak at least once a week and the topic first time coming up after years of talking. And he said, Oh no, no, there's definitely a device. You, it's like a woman's device. If you want to use it that way without going too crazy, a, a vibrator, I'll say it. There was a vibrator and it's a shape of one, but it's put up the man from the backside and it's giving a pulsating stimulant, uh, electrical pulsating stimulant. And what it's doing is it's getting the rest of the body to react so that a man can be with a woman in space and reproduce. And I had never, this was yesterday, I had never heard of this technology, yet it makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah, no, it does. I, I'm curious whether it'll be pleasurable or. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I didn't. I'm glad this is a conversation with a man instead of a woman, so that it doesn't come back at me. Uh, at this point, uh, we could have a program with a woman online, but it was it was a interesting dialogue because we we're talking about civilization, and the challenges that we'll have to address on one six or one third or or just in zero g. And the other thing he brought up, and you're probably aware of this, I'm assuming, that the Russians neither deny or agree that they've had uh, sex in space. And it I is- heard, I've heard that, I've also heard, uh, and I don't know if this is true, I heard a rumor uh, of something happening on the American side, but I don't know if that's just, you know, one of these uh, urban legends or not. There's one couple that did not go up together in Russia that ended up getting married after they had both been up or something of that nature. So I don't know. Interesting conversation. But I do love the idea that until we can get to a, a normalcy, what we consider to be a human on earth normalcy, where you can go through your day to day, then that will then turn into civilization versus an outpost. Yeah. Otherwise, you're right. You just you can't you can't live life. You're not you're not a civilization if you're always assuming you're on the mission. <laughs> so, yeah, I th that's an interesting jump that I have thought about, but not in these in this uh, topical area. Cool. Anything else to add to that? No, I don't. I think we pretty much covered it. I could go on since, as I said, since I wrote a whole book on the alcohol thing. I, I could go on a whole another hour on that, but this is probably a good place. Get, give me give me one, because we really didn't hit alcohol. Give me one or two really strong points on the alcohol side. Because I'd really like to know. Well, okay, let me, before I give those, tell me what you're looking for. I mean, there are, there are dozens of companies right now, or companies and organizations investing on whether we can consume or manufacture and consume alcohol in space. There's also an interesting history of drinking in space. And then of course, in my book, I also look at enabling technologies, primarily agriculture and synthetic biology. Where were you kind of, what are you looking for? Um, um I don't want um. What I'm, I think we all, I'm not gonna talk for other people. I think I have this preconceived notion of being able to drink in space. You have your bottle, you can drink, you can do. Uh, I don't really, I just, something radical, something that we would not have thought about. Let me ask you a different question. Something that made you say, oh my God, I hadn't thought about that when you were writing it to the degree that standout-ish in the writing. Well, one, I, I'm going to do a top level one and I'll get down to the very specifics because you okay. kind of, leading up to it, I kind of it came to focus. Now, the main thing for me with in writing the book, which really stuck out, was the fact that the requirements for manufacturing alcohol in space are almost identical to what's needed to maintain human civilization. You need everything. You need the, you know, you need, you know, you need the agriculture. You need um, obviously an environment, air, everything else. And so there was so much parallel. I realized. You know, by investing in this, you are making those direct investments in space exploration. So that was like like the Budweiser example. But some of the things that stood out that are actually being worked on right now 
were things like um, many people know that, of course, there's, I don't know if you know, you probably have heard that carbonation is problematic in microgravity. Didn't know yeah. that, but now I do. Okay. So, you, uh, well, you know when you put a glass of carbonated beverage, beer, Coca-Cola, champagne, on the table in 1G, the gas rises up and disperses into the atmosphere. Right. And so, in space, it doesn't do that. It, stay, I mean, at least it, stay, it stays within the fluid, so it's always going to be carbonated to a degree that's yeah. really well, carbonated. It merges, yeah, it merges into the center and slowly starts expanding. Does that in your stomach also? And so astronauts who've consumed um, carbonated drinks report stomach cramps and wet burps, which doesn't promote a good drinking experience. Yeah. And so there are companies right now looking at this, trying to figure that out, and largely alcohol companies, see if they can create not only beverages that you could that are carbonated that you can consume without the negative impacts but also ways of consuming them more authentically. As you mentioned, squirting beverages into the air. Well, you can do that, but you know, some of the uh, alcohol producers are really concerned about that. They want their products to be consumed authentically in space. So companies like uh, Maison Moon, champagne producer in France, um, is, you know, pr uh, produced a champagne, with the right balance of um, carbonation. It was actually one of their products anyway. Created a bottle for dispersing it in space, but also created a glass, a special glass, that you could actually drink their product in space to maintain the, quote, conviviality of drinking their product in microgravity for future people at, you know, in space hotels. But, you know, other companies are looking at designing um, gla other glassware. There's a company that looked at how to create a cocktail glass in space and scotch glasses. And they're trying to figure out these problems of fluid dynamics, how, how liquids adhere to surfaces in space so that you can actually drink out of a glass, but you're also solving other problems at the same time. Uh, you know, with these fluid dynamic problems, uh, it might be useful in other parts of the si other systems of the spacecraft. So this, this is where, you know, real, what's really struck me was how much of the research being done with it to, to enable consumption and manufacture of alcohol in space has a direct tie to other necessary capabilities in space. And so this is why I am, was got, even got more excited about this topic because of the number of companies that are investing in these capabilities that can be used well beyond the need for a drink in space, but also can be brought back to Earth. And we don't even know how the absorption will happen in these environments no. after our body has been out of Earth orbit. So that, yeah. that, that even, I think I've said it on another program, Lynn Harper, who's out of NASA said to me one day, we don't even know if cells will divide properly. And then we had Yossi Amin on one of these programs and they do CubeSat uh, Space Pharma. They do pharmaceutical research in space. And he said they put a nerve into their testing and it grew 10 times longer than they expected. So imagine 
birth or, or living and your nerve grows 10 times longer than it's supposed to. So drinking could be an issue when it's met with alcohol in space. Yeah, and the thing is, yeah, that, that's a very good point. I address this in the book. We don't have any studies on how humans metabolize alcohol in space. We know there has been drinking. We know there's been quite a bit of drinking, but because it's so, it's un, unofficial, every space agency officially prohibits drinking in space. Um, there have been no formal studies. We have anecdotal tales. We know that it's not having small amounts of alcohol and it, usually it's cognac. Cognac is a drink of choice in space and more on that in a second. Um, we know that they can drink it in small quantities, basically a shot without any really negative impact. But we don't know if you can consume much more than that. We don't know really what the impact on the human body was is because there have been no formal studies. Once again, it's been all anecdotal tales of drinking in space. So, but maybe, the there's, maybe, is, there's, there's a, maybe they're trying to avoid the previous conversation that could happen if there's too much alcohol. Well, yeah, I mean, I understand the reasons, but... No, that, that was a joke. This, that, that was a joke. It was yeah, a bad joke, but it, you got it. <laughs> no, but it's, but it's real, this, real, this real concern there, there are so many different reasons why people, you know, are concerned about the topic, and some of it's legitimate, but it's also, since so many people are investing in this, it's, ine it's an inevitable thing. You know, anybody who thinks we're going to have settlements in space assume there'll be alcohol there. So it's, it may not be the most important thing. And I don't actually disagree with an official prohibition, you know, you know, with at the scale of space exploration we're doing right now. But since we know what's happening and we know it's going to happen, it's a legitimate area for study. You know, and that's where it gets, and that's, it's much easier than the whole sex and space thing. There aren't as many ethical right, concerns. Right. Well, I, and I, I, I would wonder who has been, who was the first person in low, uh, low Earth, uh, low Earth orbit, who was the first person who has had alcohol above the atmospheric line? The I've first person, the first person that I know of, the alcohol has gone up for this, uh, you know, with gags like Apollo, Apollo eight free bottles of brandy went up with, you know, uh, that crew as a gag for their holiday meal, but they didn't drink it. Jim Lovell sold his bottle years later, I think for like, like $20,000, maybe $30,000, but uh, for about bottle, small bottles of brandy that had gone around the moon. But six months later, uh, the first person I'm aware of that actually had alcohol in space had wine on the surface of the moon. That would have been Buzz Aldrin, part of a communion ceremony, and that's well publicized. He wrote about that, and basically he had arranged with his church, the Webster Presbyterian Church in Houston, to do a communion ceremony. So they brought up this little goblet, some communion wine. He poured it in the one-six gravity. He describes that, and does you know says a few prayers and consumes it. And to my knowledge, that is the first time and. And think the last time anybody's consumed uh, an alcoholic beverage on a planetary, another planetary body. Cool. I suspect, I suspect others had drunk, consumed alcohol in space before then, but because I know plenty had been smuggled up more as gags, but I would be shocked if nobody tasted it. <laughs> yeah. But 
That's the first one that I'm aware of. Okay. And anything more with the topic of outposts in space and uh, the template? No, I think we I think we pretty much covered that. Okay, so let's get to future missions to Moon, and we'll add in the Mars are already benefiting humanity. Love I'm not going to spend. Yeah, I'm not going to spend too much time on this one, but a level. Think about what's going on now within the space industry. Think about all these companies that I've mentioned. They're trying to get to make it happen. SpaceX, SpaceX, the whole point SpaceX was created was go to Mars. Mm -hmm. Elon wanted, always wanted to back in the early 2000s. He wanted to send the first greenhouse to Mars called Oasis. He didn't like the launch options. You had bribed too many people in Russia. He didn't like the U.S. options, so he, he decided, I'm going to build my own rocket. People thought he was nuts at the time. They don't anymore, or at least for that. <laughs> um, but even with Tesla, Tesla was part of this overall vision that he had, you know, on, on electrical energy and utilizing that in space as well. But others, you know, even these companies I mentioned, you know, like Budweiser or others, who want to become players in this are actually innovating with Mars in mind or the moon in mind. And so we always talk about the side effects, these spin-offs. Well, we're having a lot of spin-offs well in advance of the actual missions. Whereas when you went to the moon, well, some of those were as well as they were ramping up for going to the moon. For instance, miniaturization of circuitry for computers, which eventually really led to the boom in Silicon Valley. Uh, same thing now, but I think on a bigger scale, it is having the, the dream of going to the moon and Mars, of um, manufacturing products in space, mining space, et cetera, is already playing a large role, innovating for innovation here on Earth and benefiting people. Going back to the SpaceX model, you know, a new company lowering launch costs, enabling, you know, greater access to space. But the same thing with so many other companies, Blue Origin, but even the legacy companies have gotten, you know, I think have been stimulated to become more innovative as well. So, so I think. So I'm going to push you here a little bit, only because of our conversation earlier, that project and how we got to this topic is that in the presentation that I've used or talk about Project Moonhut, I show the traditional items that you can look up and find, for example, uh, uh, that have come to Earth from space. The boots on an airplane, those black uh, shields on the end of the, uh, on the tail, the front end of a wing was created through space exploration and we use it so airplanes can fly. We have used uh, all different, and I'm not gonna go over them because maybe you have some others, but we've already seen direct implications, including Invisalign braces, that have come from space. And what we had talked about, or I had said to you is, I wonder how many people have worked for a JPL, a NASA, a Japanese version, the European Space Agency, who worked for a company for, for the organization or agency for 10 years, and they left, and those thoughts Tr converted in mug manufacturing or uh, uh, book manufacturing or tool manufacturing. I've got to believe there's a lot of crossover. So do you have any examples of where 
we really found things that were those spinoffs that you could name. Spinoffs from previous or just space and any Anything that you can think of that we wouldn't typically put towards being space related. So for example, when I say the airplane wing, people often look at me and say, I didn't realize that came from space. And when we talk about GPS, GPS is a space technology. It was developed to, to put in for a variety of reasons. And that has helped us to operate our, our cars, to go look for a new place or go on holiday or do something well, that we didn't realize. Yeah, and I'm gonna talk about some of the legacy ones, not necessarily ones that are directly being inspired by Mars right now. The biggest one was the one I mentioned earlier, just that whole, um, the impact the Apollo program all had on computer age. It didn't invent computers, but it stimulated a concept, a, a way of looking at it, miniature, miniaturizing circuitry, and really stimulated, you know, what is now Silicon Valley, you know, the way we think of it. And it means just that momentum completely transformed our economy, the way we look at the world, the devices we use. We, you can, I can't say that, you know, going to the moon didn't invent my iPad, but it enabled, it enabled the iPad, it enabled cell, new cell phones and all the computers and every communications that we're using right now. But going down to micro gadgetry, I wouldn't call them micro gadgetry, actual very, you know, essential uh, tools. Uh, well, I don't believe it was invented in space, I believe um, smoke detectors largely got advanced using, I believe it was on Skylab, you know, so that technology advanced, you know, you don't want fires in space. And so that was something that we just assume is part of everybody's life, you know, you required to have them by fire code, <laughs> but we're impact, you know, we're advanced by space, same thing with power tools, you know, the need, you know, you know, power, battery powered tools, you know, are greatly advanced by space exploration. And you can go through this, it goes down. I mean, you, people say, well, that wasn't exclusively invented. There are a lot of products that were not, you know, you can show earlier versions, but the utilization of space and using them in those harsh environments where you don't have a, you know, a, you can't put a, you know, like if you go out on a spacewalk, you're not going to have a long extension cord. You know, trying to figure out these problems instantly have a benefit here on Earth. Um, I just lost. I had another example here that just went flying by. But I'll give an obvious one, but I don't think people appreciate it. Because um, you had mentioned GPS. And people always complain about, you know, how accurate the weather forecasting is. Well, <laughs> for everybody, um, complaining about how accurate weather forecasting is. Um, take a look, but try to yeah, go back to before we had weather satellites, see how accurate weather forecasting was then. Did a, did a, you know, while they don't always predict the track of a uh, hurricane perfectly, <laughs> I don't think we've ever, we've had any occasion in the last 50 years where we didn't actually know the hurricane was there. <laughs> so. The, the one that I came to mind while I was thinking about it is SRI uh, out of, I don't know if it started in Silicon Valley, but there's an organization, and I don't know the abbreviation, what it stands for, SRI, you might know. 
and they're a huge, I'm going to have to look it up then, SRI. Do you know what a C SRI is? SRI. I'm looking it up also. <laughs> SRI in Palo Alto. Uh, we had an office there with our, our artificial intelligence company, and we were in SRI, International Headquarters, which is on, yeah, we, we were at Ravenwood, Mount Menlo Park. And they do some really, really sophisticated space satellites and space technology that has enabled a lot of the flights or the, the satellite development. But I also, not that I know, there's a Hewlett Packard and Apple and some of these other companies, I don't know the exact story, so I'm, I'm kind of talking out one side of my mouth. I do know that there were contracts that were given to a company such as, as an example, Hewlett Packard, for parts and components that allowed those companies to thrive, which eventually became tech companies in the Valley because of SRI and, or vice versa. The fact that SRI was there, they did the research and because SRI was there, uh, they pursued or were funded in a way. So a lot of the Valley had some of its orientation that was um, advanced tech. Make sense the way I said it? I think I did. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And it's very consistent with what I was mentioning earlier, all these companies that, you know, whether it be, you know, the impact from these space-related activities or now their interest, their current interest in space exploration activities coming, coming back full circle. Yeah, there's, there's a, a ton of those type of technologies. And I don't, until I started on this journey with Project Moon Hut, I didn't really pay as much attention to how many of the paradigm shifting thinking developments created a new way of looking at product innovation, service innovation, that ended up becoming products we use every day, even more so. I think the interesting part is when you work for a company like a JPL or a European Space Agency or a Russian uh, agency, it doesn't make a difference. You are indoctrinated to a new way of looking at the world and those concepts you can't lose. So when you stop working in that business and you go to the next business, you can't but remember that there was this technology created to do X and you will come at a, a challenge or an opportunity in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise, just because you were exposed to that way of thinking. Yeah, I agree. It's just fascinating. When you look back through the basically the lineage of technologies and where they came from or the connection to space and how that went through. So interesting to always follow that path, you know, that enabled technologies, enabled industries. And, but as I said earlier, so much of it, well, not exclusive, you can't, you know, we don't want to put too much because the technologies that came before Apollo, you know, largely got motivated by, you know, World War II, post-World War II, Cold War, leading up to the space race, and then that big burst of technology trying to get to the moon, which led to other things. So you never say it's all this, no, right. but no. never ever, it never is all that. <laughs> you always stand on the, you know, the shoulders of giants and the, and the additional shoulders of giants and, you know, moves forward. But you sometimes have these 
moments in time that are far and away more impactful than others. So let's take the next jump, and this is a tough one. The global coordination is essential. I'd love to hear your take on this. And this is, this is where, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword here, where we are right now. You know, we, we want the whole world to be doing this. And, you know, when, with my organization, we're always trying to push the international angle you know, to make sure the whole world is involved from a policy. And now I'm talking, I know from, you know, your group, you tried to stay away from space, particular space organizations, meaning NASA and JAXA and the European Space Agency. But from the international perspective, you know, assuming that governments are going to play a role in these initial phases, one of the things we look at, and this is more of a political thing, international cooperation is very important in creating a long-term sustainable program because example international space station would not exist if it didn't become the international space station if it remained space station freedom it never would have been built and so we kind of look at this in this way when we're thinking about Mars missions and making the assumption, you know, we're certainly for if companies like Blue Origin, SpaceX or others find a way to do it on their own without government funding, that's terrific. But assuming as we're gonna have government um, led programs to begin with, we need to make sure, find ways to assure this will have momentum over time. And ISS was able to maintain its um, sustainability because it wasn't just dependent on Congress or one president. You had international partnerships, treaties between different company countries. And so it wasn't just a matter of um, somebody saying, well, let's cut funding for this. By doing that, you really work to edit my language, um, you know, all your international partners. So it's a, it's a harder decision to say, we're going to stop the ISS. So we're kind of looking at this for moving forward with SpaceX, or I mean, going back to the moon and Mars, but this also presents other issues that are, are more challenging because by doing this, it also creates complications. You're obviously making it more complex, potentially more expensive, and you have to rely on other players. So it's trying to find that balance so you can say, yes, this should be U.S.-led, whether it be U.S. in the grand sense of government sent or a company that's leading the effort, you know, but finding the right ways to integrate the international community, because I think this can be, it's a, one of the most, particularly in these days, one of the most effective tools to build up worldwide support, effort, one of our best diplomatic tools. Everybody loves space, you know, even in this country. It's the only probably one one of maybe one or two topics right now that have strong public support, strong Republican, strong Democratic, overall public support and international support. And so I think you need to harness that. And I think since you have that broad-based support, you know, from all political spheres, all backgrounds, nationalities, how can you harness that to make sure it happens, even if it makes it a little more complicated? It's a, it's a, uh, two things. First one is, it's a broad assumption, I believe, from the space industry that people love space. And that's one that I've 
had to demonstrate over and over and over again to individuals in the space industry. I love Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars. I always say it the same way. I love the movies, but I am not a lover of space. I do not walk down the street and look up. I do not say I wish to live on another planet. Would I like to be on Star Trek Enterprise and be able to zoom across, but then come back? Yeah, that would be kind of fun. But if you said you're going to live on Mars, that's not my ticket. Well, I, I, do I don't want to live on Mars either. And so I'm probably similar to you in that respect. But, you know, I don't necessarily, I would like to go into space and it'd be fun. Yeah, I don't I, I, yeah. so <laughs> I, I have this dialogue often with people in the space industry. And I say, first of all, let's make, let's get this clear. There's a lot of people who are very Earth oriented when you think of the 7.5 billion who are not space oriented. Another point that I always say to them, when they say, oh, I'd love to go to space. I say, okay, wait, let's stop for a minute. Just break for just one second. We're gonna put on this helmet and this outfit. We're not sure if you're gonna come back. Maybe you're 45 years old, maybe you're 53, and your daughter is gonna go through graduation next year from university, or your son is going to have a child, or you're gonna have great-grandchildren. Are you gonna put on that outfit knowing you may never come back or you may die? Now realize this is a real question. I mean, you may not come back. Will you hop on that aircraft if your kids say, I want you to be around to raise the grandchildren? Well, I think it's more of a gut jerk, re a knee jerk reaction to this fantasy of space because we're far from being sure that everybody will make it and everybody will come back. And the third, going back to the point of global coordination, is that is part of the reason that Project Moon Hut has its orientation that it does, is that oh, space is hope to me. It's not redactive. We're not taking away things when you go to space. We're, at, we're additive to the future of humanity, where a lot of the challenges we're facing on Earth will be solved to a large degree the way we're doing it, redactive, taking away the, thing, the activities we're engaged in. So I think that there's gotta be a balance and it's not a plug for Project Moon, it's what I've been talking about, is that I think that we need that balance that says, like the topic we came up with, is that the impact of space exploration impacts how we live on Earth, and there could be huge, huge, huge benefits that come out of it. And I think that dialogue is not really shared when we talk about space, when it comes to the individuals who are engaged in space. Even though it's a known, it's more, let's go, instead of, no, 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 no. A good example of this, of a very practical example of the benefits of international cooperation in space, but I think it's a good microcosm of what it could be, is on ISS. Um, whether you like ISS or not, it's irrelevant. But yeah. if you thought the whole international process was smooth or not, it had some areas that weren't smooth. But yeah, look at the relationship with Russia. You know, our U.S. and Russia have had pretty rocky relations over the last, you know, probably decade now. You know, they've gone up and down, but it's always been constant in space. We've worked, it hasn't affected that relationship. It's kind of tied us together. And I think it's, I think it's actually done more than people are aware of. They really hold us together. So it didn't go too far that our countries, even during these harsh times, were working, it didn't impact the you know, working relationship. And I spoke to a lot of people who were in the ISS community at NASA and elsewhere, even when they were at the most rocky periods of US-Russian relations. And they said, 
hasn't really been impacted at all. It's generally an assumption. We all agree, keep the politics out, let's keep moving forward. And I think it's played an interesting role that goes well beyond the initial goals of the International Space Station and has true, truly worked as a, a very important diplomatic tool and holding, holding it, well, not hostile, but <laughs> conflicted countries together. <laughs> I would look at, uh, maybe if I'm, if let me try to change that a little bit differently. So uh, on the International Space Station, there are 11 countries that are shared in this endeavor. So we've got Canada, uh, Japan, uh, the Russian Federation, we've got US, uh, we've got uh, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, France, Italy, Netherlands, I, I don't remember all the names. So we've got all of these groups working together to create this International Space Station. And what surprised me, which what you're just saying is, is while the politics are going back and forth, this group of individuals is still talking to all the other groups around the world every day as if it's not actually happening. There's shared resources, there's shared dialogue. Now it's not to say everybody's involved. For example, I don't know the degree in which China shares, yet there is a huge community of programmers, designers, space enthusiasts, whatever you may call them, in this one world where days go by as if the world is just getting along. Is that a safe yeah. way to say it? Yes, they have, they have to work with each other. They have to maintain this facility. They have to move forward. They have strong relationships. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't ever affect them, you know, but it's generally, from what I've heard from people I've talked to, it's been a very normal relationship during all of this. And kind of the bring back, kind of an interesting bring it back, it's kind of funny, but um, the whole alcohol thing, it's because it has a relationship here because one of the best, one of the, another story that I found while writing the book that directly relates to international cooperation also directly relates to consumption of alcohol. And it goes right to this whole issue one of the primary benefits that alcohol has played on ISS and Mir before then was bonding, camaraderie. They wouldn't, it wouldn't be something they do every day, but for special occasions when there was a new crew on the ISS, and I don't know if this happens every time, but it certainly has happened a number of times. Everybody would come together in the Russian section, <coughs> excuse me, they'd pull out the cognac, they'd have, you know, get together, have a shot of cognac, and it would serve as a bonding experience to crews that come from different um, backgrounds, cultures, and from places that weren't necessarily getting along with each other. So I think it served that, that diplomatic role of um, building relationships in space. And I, I, have you ever been to Russia? Yes, I have, just once. The amazing thing is just as we all hear, when you're in Russia, you do drink. <laughs> I'm assuming the, <laughs> you, I, the, uh, my first, I landed in, in Moscow, no, St. Petersburg. We didn't even go to the hotel. We went out and we went to a club and there were three, three of us and they, they ordered a, a magnum full of vodka. And oh. fast forward, there, were, there ended up being six of us, but we fast forward to when I landed, I had to go to Moscow next. 
And I was there about five days. And I kept track of how many shots I had. Every dinner, there was a person whose sole job was to pour. And there were cheers every single time we did something. And I had 70 shots. And I am not a drinker. I had 70 yeah. shots in five days. It was beyond imagination. Yeah, I mean, I drink, but I don't drink. But yeah, yeah I, I don't drink either. I, I, I don't get drunk. It was just an amazing experience. But that's the bonding. All every day, but not. You know, I have a glass of wine, and <laughs> I, I wouldn't be able to function with seventy shots. And well, I that was over. Still, that was over five days. But let, let's say you you have alcohol every day. Has it changed because of the coronavirus? <laughs> Uh, actually, but, well, no, it has actually increased slightly. I'm trying to maintain, I'm trying to control that, you know, make sure I don't partake too much. But it's, so it, I have gone up a little bit, but I've been trying to keep that under wraps. That's okay. I, I'm, pick, I'm picking on you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, bear in mind also, I have another 10 minutes. So. Yep. So, uh, no, that, this is good. This is a good place to end, that the bonding happens. And... Yeah, the, there's there's a lot here, and there's a lot more that we haven't shared, and it's interesting. Uh, you, you brought up some things that I didn't know and didn't connect to. I like the I like the Antarctica uh, connection and this talking about that we'll have these depots, these uh, stations, but not really having that community and that civilization long after. I like the Budweiser example of uh, how that's their, into their work in engaged in the process of developing. And even the fact that our society wouldn't get there until we got rid of some of these taboos was a, another meaningful way of looking at how do we know when the metric has been met, that we have we've reached that civilization outside of Earth, which I'm not sure what that actual timeline will be. And I thought that's an interesting take. And any last thing that you want to say to me? Any last thing? No, I think we pretty much covered it. I think it just, I think the key thing here is that as a community, we just need to do a better job at articulating the connections. And, you know, when we're talking about these ambitious goals, we don't do a good job at showing why they're realistic, but it's the, the absolute benefits that are already happening. And it's not just the big rocket companies, you know, it's not just SpaceX, Boeing, Lockheed, um, you know, Aerojet, Rocketdyne, and all the others. It's, you know, people, small companies around the country, around the world, companies, every, you know, You'd be amazed how many small companies are working on space exploration. It's not their primary contract, but you know, in every pretty much every congressional district, there are very few of them in the around the United States that do not have something that's related to space. There are a few small ones that yeah you know, just don't get any, but virtually all of them do. And I think that's that's a key thing showing how much this impacts society, how much it already has, and making the real argument of what it's going to take to get there, but also tempering some of these overly ambitious, ambitious viewpoints. Yes, we all want to get to that city on the moon that you mentioned at the beginning, but there are a number of steps we need to go through before we get there. And so it's kind of finding that balance, maintaining that inspiring future, but also keeping people realistic. 
Well, I want to thank you for being on the program. I truly appreciate it. And I want to thank uh, everybody who's out there listening in. I do hope that you learned something today in a way that you hadn't heard it. And hopefully you're shifting of the need or what's happening in space has been expanded a little bit more to, to what could happen. And Project Moon Hut has many of the activities that we've talked about. So we are looking to establish a box with a roof and a door to become that trigger, to become that final, that, that uh, Roger Bannister space where everything opens up and people do say, this is where we can thrive in the future. And Chris, what's the single best way to connect with you if someone wanted to connect with you? Well, if they want to email me, just carberry, C-A-R-B-E-R-R-Y at exploremars.org, or they can just go to our web, exploremars website, exploremars.org. Okay, well, uh, I'd love to connect with anybody who's interested. You can reach me at david at projectmoonhut.org. Uh, we do have a YouTube channel, which is uh, Project Moon Hut. You can see our logo there. You can connect Twitter, Project, at Project Moon Hut. Um, for me personally, you can also do at Goldsmith, or you can do LinkedIn and Facebook. You can look for me there. So for everyone out there, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.